Happy holidays! We're wrapping up the year with two of our favorite episodes from 2019 featuring science writer Carl Zimmer. Today's classic episode is ad-free, so we hope you enjoy. And you should know that we first published this episode on Pi Day. To be clear, Pi Day is not today. Although you're certainly welcome to eat some pie to celebrate the new year. If you have no idea what we're talking about, then don't worry, it'll make sense in a few minutes. Have a safe and happy New Year's Eve, and stay subscribed to Curiosity Daily for brand new episodes starting in 2020. That's tomorrow. Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about common learning myths that even educators believe, and the scientific reason why it feels like you always have more room for dessert. Like pie. Happy pie day. Happy pie day. You'll also hear what happened when we asked science writer Carl Zimmer a pretty big question. What is life? Let's satisfy some curiosity. We started yesterday's episode with a little bit of myth busting, so why not do it again? This time we'll talk about misconceptions around learning. And according to one study, even educators believe these seven myths. As reported by How Stuff Works, this study looked at results from a true or false survey taken by more than 3,000 respondents. There were three groups of participants who took the survey. One was the general public, one was general educators, and one was people who had taken college neuroscience courses, what the study called people with high neuroscience exposure. And these myths are so pervasive, they were believed by 68% of the general public, 56% of educators, so yeah, more than half, and 46% of the neuroscience-exposed group, which is pretty close to half, too. Here are the seven myths. First, individuals learn better when they receive information in their preferred learning style. Sorry, but research has shown those don't exist. Second, children have learning styles that are dominated by a particular sense, like hearing or seeing. Again, no. Third, a common sign of dyslexia is seeing letters backwards. There is actually no evidence of this. Fourth, listening to classical music increases children's reasoning ability. If only. Talk about an easy way to give your kids an edge, am I right? But no, it's not true. Fifth, children are less attentive after they have sugary drinks or snacks. Turns out that's just a false association. The sixth myth, people can be left-brained or right-brained, and that helps explain learning differences. We've done whole podcast episodes on how the left-brain, right-brain thing is just plain wrong. So, yeah, that one's also a myth. And seventh, we only use 10% of our brain. Turns out there are loads of evidence that all the parts of our brain are always active. Otherwise, if you had brain damage, there would be a 90% chance nothing bad would come from it, right? The point of this study wasn't to make you feel dumb, so please don't if you didn't know any of these things. Instead, the researchers are hoping they can help educators set people straight and share more accurate information in the future. We don't know what we don't know. So don't let these myths discourage you. Think of it as an opportunity to think smarter, not harder. You always have more room in your brain for knowledge. But you know what else it feels like you always have room for? Dessert. And there's a specific reason for that. What better way to celebrate Pie Day than by learning why it feels like you can always eat pie? By the way, it's Pie Day because today is March 14th, which on the calendar is 3 slash 14. Pie is 3.14. That's right. I don't know how many people we should explain this to. I just feel <laughs> like maybe it's worth noting. No, absolutely. And also, I feel like it's worth noting that I'm definitely going to eat pie today. <laughs> I do it every year. I'm absolutely going to. There's a lovely little pie cafe in my neighborhood. What kind of pie? Well, it just depends on what's on the menu. I mean, they've got a really good chocolate peanut butter pie that I might be going for. I'm a cherry pie guy. 
Weird. <laughs> so according to one school of thought, you always have room for dessert because of a thing called sensory-specific satiety. It basically means that you weren't actually full, your senses were just bored. Sensory-specific satiety refers to the idea that the more of one kind of food you eat in a single sitting, the less appealing that food becomes. It might feel like you're full, but really it's just that your brain is kind of bored and doesn't want to take a 20th bite of that chicken breast. That's why when the pie shows up, you're suddenly ready to eat again. If you're watching your waistline, don't worry. There's a way to get around this. A 2009 study published in the British Journal of Nutrition found that you can make sensory-specific satiety happen faster if you eat in smaller doses. That can help you feel full before you find yourself overeating. For example, for this study, people who were told that they could drink as much orange soda as they wanted to ended up drinking less if they drank in smaller sips. Those smaller sips led to more sensory exposure per ounce, so the participants reached sensory-specific satiety faster. So the next time dinner comes with a promise of pie, don't skip dessert, just eat in smaller bites. Have you ever wondered about the scientific definition of life? Well, we have, and you're about to hear from someone else who has, too. Carl Zimmer is an award-winning science writer, and we interviewed him at an event for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. On top of all of his writing, he has a new podcast literally called What is Life? It's a series of live conversations between Carl Zimmer and eight leading thinkers on the question of what it means to be alive. Makes him pretty qualified to answer this question. So here's the little mini philosophical discussion we had when I asked him straight up, what is life? So I, I had these conversations with leading experts on the definition of life, on the origin of life, and I would ask them, well, what's your definition of life? And they, they would really squirm hard to get out of that. And part of that is just because we don't have a theory of life yet. And what's interesting is actually like some of these scientists like, like um, Jeremy England at MIT are, are actually like developing these theories, uh, looking at life as an energy dissipation process. And they're actually starting to study it seriously, scientifically, in a way that just wasn't possible before. So I don't, I, I don't think it is possible to give a definition of life. It just isn't. You can talk about life as a process, maybe, but um, I don't know, you know? Like, I'm not sure we'd know life if we found it on another planet. I mean, I think we're so limited to ourselves. We, it's sort of like in, you know, Star Trek, where everybody is... Everyone on other planets has, like, two arms and two legs and happens to look like a Hollywood extra. Like, how interesting is that? Yeah. You know, I don't... That's not how it's going to be. It's going to be, like, some crystal in a cave that seems to be moving. And is that alive or not? You know, like, it's going to be weird. Yeah. I was particularly fascinated with the astrobiologist who believed that life doesn't follow physics. Physics is actually a subset of what causes life. Yeah, I know. I know, I know. And I'm trying to have like a conversation with this person in front of a live audience. And I'm like, yeah, keep the brain inside the skull. What is she saying? I, uh, this is wild. Yeah, it was, yeah. It's, they're, they're a fun crew to, to hang out with, definitely. I'd imagine. I think it's cool you're expanding some of these questions. Like I, I think of ancient Greece and philosophy and science were not different, right? In ancient sure. Greece, it was basically the same kind of thing. And that really sounds like what a lot of you know, the subject of your latest book, if you're talking about genes and, like, who we are and, and what we are, there, there's, there's a little bit of philosophy in there, too, right? There's a lot of philosophy. I mean, in a way, I think of philosophy as, as figuring out what you mean by what you say. And, and scientists do not really think that much about what they mean because they think that they have a very sort of clear-cut one-to-one -one mapping between their language and reality. But, you know, if you say, like, oh, I'm a scientist that studies life... You know, a philosopher would be like, yeah, what's that? 
Uh, and literally, like, you could, there was a one scientist who looked at different definitions of life, and he, and he came up with like, over 300 of them, like serious, legitimate definitions of life that scientists had put forward. So scientists are not agreed on it. Now, it helps to sort of start to, to, to make sure you're being clear about what you're thinking about, especially when it comes to genes. Like, you know, if you say, like, well, it's in my DNA, like, whoa, what do you... <laughs> What do you mean? I mean, like, the pe- ever since I've told people I was working on a book on, on heredity, they say, like, oh, well, X is in my DNA. X can be anything from, I don't know, hemophilia to just loving ice cream. You know, like, it's just everything we think of as being somewhere embedded in, in our DNA, and it's not. So we, do, we could benefit from thinking more like philosophers, I think. We'll put links to Carl Zimmer's podcast, What is Life, in today's show notes, along with links to his book and more. Read about today's stories and more on Curiosity.com. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.